0: The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Did you know that relaxation is all in your mind? That's right. By applying various techniques of mindfulness, you can practice relaxation anywhere and anytime. Whether it's at home, work, or at play. Welcome to Come Back to Your Senses Radio with host Leah Brenda Smith. Our program is all about recovering your common sense. If you'd like to call into our program today, use our toll-free number 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send an email, the address is Leah at ComeBackToYourSenses.com. Now, here's health and wellness specialist, Leah Brenda-Smith.
1: Hello and welcome. I am your host, Leah Brenda-Smith, and thanks for tuning in to come back to your senses radio on Voice America Variety. Today, the show is all about the brain rules and some different rules that have been put together to help us to understand how our brain functions. But before I get into that... You know, just on a personal note, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be taking a hiatus from doing the weekly live show. Now, I'm not going anywhere, and my host page for Come Back to Your Senses Radio will still be there on Voice America Variety, and you'll still have access 24-7 to the 90-some archive shows that are posted there. But for this season, the last live show will be on November 14th. And then just to give you a sense of what I'm up to for the remainder of the year, I'm going to be taking some time to finish my metaphysical ministry studies and also um, to continue working on an outline for a um a book that I'm considering writing on the divine lineage of Reiki. And um which may lead to some other writing projects as well. And then in the new year, I'm going to open up my schedule for um classes and private sessions uh, for well-being coaching. So spiritual coaching and coaching focus specifically on your well-being. And these um, uh, will, you can do these either in person, if you're in uh, my local area, uh, on the telephone or via Skype. So you'll still be able to connect with me through my website at leahbrendasmith.com on Facebook through Leah Brenda Smith or the Come Back to Your Radio uh, radio Senses. Yeah, we all need Radio Senses. Come Back to Your Senses radio page. And then if you have any questions or if you'd like to stay up to date on the different supports and services that I'm offering and as well information about future live shows, then just simply send me an email. Send it to Leah at ComeBackToYourSenses.com and then I'll answer any of your questions or if you want to set up a private consultation to discuss um being involved in some coaching services or other types of supports and then as well if you're wanting just um to be put on the email list so that you can stay informed about what it is that I'm uh, that I'm doing next so having said all that before we jump into today's show topic which is the brain rules I'd just like to say a special hello to the listeners in these particular areas where there's large numbers of community um, that are tuning into the show. So in the States, it's uh, Texas and Maryland, California, Illinois, New York, and Massachusetts. And then the United Kingdom and the United Arab Emirates emirates and then in canada we have the province of bc and then my home province of ontario canada so a special thanks to folks in those uh, large uh, communities communities that are uh, tuning in with large numbers to the show and then also you know always a special heartfelt thanks to all the listeners everywhere for tuning in every week to come back to your senses radio And uh, I really encourage you to reach out and let me know if there is any way that I can support you on your journey, or just, as I said, pop me an email if you want to stay on my email list so that you can um, uh, stay current with the different things that I'm doing and uh, learn about more opportunities coming up in the future. So, now let's jump into the information for today's show Certainly, as a general comment, the average person knows very little about their brain. Generally, we tend to know when the brain is in gear, and we tend to know when it seems like the gears have been stripped, so to speak. You know, sometimes I even find myself uh, talking out loud to my brain, kind of coaxing or encouraging um, my brain to drop down the information that I'm looking for and this became especially true for me after having a um a brain injury in two thousand and seven. I found that for the longest time my brain was certainly slower to process the information, and it did feel like I needed to wait sometimes for the information to kind of drop down uh, for me. So generally that you know that approach has been a really useful kind of focusing technique. Kind of um kind of seems like it brings my brain back on online, and that's just one example of like many little gimmicks or tricks that people use to try to get their gray matter going, if you like. You know there's lots of people that would swear that caffeine is the most effective brain lubricant, and they faithfully use that you know every morning to kick start their brain. yet what's really going on here? is different from all of those things. You know, what is science really telling us about the brain and how the brain functions? And what we can in, what you know we can do on an individual basis to encourage optimal brain performance. You know, like most things it seems that lifestyle really plays a big role in determining whether or not your brain is happy or irritable. And brain rules are based on information that scientists have become definitive about with regard to how the brain functions. So like anything else in life, when you don't know the rules, it's hard to play the game. Yet when we have clear information about habits that support optimal brain health and function, then it's much easier to make wise choices that will support not only optimal health of the brain day to day, but will also contribute to longevity of having healthy brain function. So both those things are really of primary importance. And then in his book, Brain Rules, the subtitle is 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School. And the author of that book is a molecular biologist, Dr. John Medina. And in his book, he shares really valuable information that could influence the way you teach your children, the way you approach work, and really the way you kind of relate to to life. And each of the chapters in his book present one of 12 science-based rules about the brain. And then... Medina also offers ideas on how to use those rules to help you produce positive results in daily life. And what we know about the brain, Medina tells us that it comes really from biologists who study brain tissues, experimental psychologists who study human behavior, and then also cognitive neuroscientists who study how... The first, the brain tissue, relates to the second, the human behavior. And then the evolutionary biologists are in the mix as well with that, that are kind of tracking the evolution of the brain from the beginning of the human species. And although we know really little bit, a very little bit, about how the brain works... Our evolutionary history tells us that the brain appears to be designed to solve problems that are related to surviving in an unstable outdoor environment. And to do this, well, they, you know, well, the brain is in constant motion. And Medina calls this the brain's performance envelope. So in his book, each of the 12 brain rules, and here's the list of them, exercise, survival, wiring, attention, memory, sleep, stress, your senses, vision, gender, and exploration. So he's suggesting that all of this relates to his coining that phrase of the performance envelope. And environmental instability really led to extreme flexibility in the way that our brains are wired. And this allowed us to solve problems through the experience of exploration, learning from our mistakes, so we could survive in the great outdoors, meant that we had to pay attention to certain things, really at the exclusion of other things. And it meant that we had to create our memories in a particular way. Now, even though uh, we, in modern times, we've been suffering... Or, well, we've been kind of stuffing ourselves into classrooms and and in learning environments and into cubicles. Our brains actually were built to survive in jungles and in grasslands. So this is the information that, that Medina kind of starts his book off to help us to understand. So he's saying that all the supporting research for the information in the 12 chapters or the 12 brain rules. It first was published in peer-reviewed journals, and then it needed to be successfully replicated. And many of the studies were replicated at least dozens of times. And then he comes up with a general statement about what the studies revealed in conjunction with his idea of the brain rules helping us to survive and thrive at work, home, and at school. So he said that if the aim really was to create an education environment that was directly opposed, the exact opposite of what the brain really needs to function well, then we would likely to design something that looked like a classroom. And that if the aim was to create um, business environments that were the exact opposite of what the brain was good at doing, then we would likely design something like the cubicle or that workstation. And then further, he said that really if the aim was to change things, then what we might have to do would be to tear down both the classroom and the cubicle and start all over again. So that's really the basis of what he, um, what Medina had um, uh, gleaned from these studies, and what he's put together in his book, uh, Brain Rules. So what we're going to do now is go through these twelve brain rules and um, and give you that information in a way that you can relate it to your daily life and your own circumstances, and give you some insight into things that you can do, slight changes in perception, in perspective in lifestyle, in our habits, that can really encourage optimal brain function and longevity. Longevity with a healthy brain, not just um, uh, adding years to your life, but adding years of healthy brain functioning to your life. So the, the first rule, and as I, I mentioned, all of this information really comes from Medina's uh, book, uh, Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at work, home, and at school. So the first rule is that exercise boosts brain power. And he makes reference to the idea that really our brains were built for walking. You know, you think of in, in, uh, if we go back in history, he would suggest that maybe the brains were really, if you think of it, In terms of brain function, that our brains are really walking like 12 miles a day in terms of what the brain is doing in terms of brain function. And that in order to improve your thinking skills, that you need to move. So we all know that exercise gets your blood pumping. And the goodness for the brain is that it infuses your brain. It creates a beautiful chain reaction of bringing your brain glucose It brings you brain glucose for energy. And then the oxygen in the blood soaks up any toxic electrons that are left over as the brain sloughs off the electrons. So movement also stimulates the protein that keeps your brain neurons connected and happy. And the studies show that aerobic exercise just twice a week has the potential of cutting your risk of dementia in half. That's really good news. So if you think of it, the human brain really evolved from the time that human beings lived in the jungle and they spent the day in constant movement. And then given this evolutionary pattern, one could easily hypothesize that the best environment for processing information would include an environment that's in motion. We need to suggest that the best business meetings would have employees walking at about maybe 1.8 miles per hour, so keeping things in motion and how healthy that is for the brain. There was a study that was done uh, with two elderly populations that led very different lifestyles. So one group was very sedentary and the other group was very active. And when the two groups were tested, the cognitive scores from the group that was regularly active were overwhelmingly higher. And then from these studies, they deduce that there's great evidence to support the brain rule that exercise positively affects executive function, spatial tasks, reaction time, and quantitative skills, so measuring skills. But then to further test the theory of exercise improving brain function, the researchers took things a step further to determine if the sedentary population became active, would their cognitive scores increase? And it seemed that the key is aerobic exercise. So after four months they noticed that after four months of this sedentary group um, being involved with aerobic exercise, that their executive functions vastly improved and that their reaction times and memory scores also improved. So really there are two main factors for improved cognition with regular aerobic exercise. So the one idea is that exercise increases the oxygen flow into the brain, which reduces the brain-bound free radicals. And an important finding in the past few decades is that this increase in oxygen is always accompanied by an increase in mental sharpness. Then the second idea is that exercise acts directly on the molecular machinery of the brain itself. And it does this by increasing the creation of neurons, the survival of, of the neurons, and the resistance that the neurons have to stress and damage. So that's the first brain rule. Exercise or motion. Motion, exercise. Moving. The brain loves that. Pumping the oxygen, pumping the, the blood increasing the oxygen, and the good things for the brain. So that's rule number one. And then the second brain rule is about survival. You know, the, the human being has certainly evolved, and the human brain has evolved. And Medina's suggesting from what science is showing is that we don't have one brain in our head, but we have three. We started with a lizard brain to keep us breathing, and then developed a brain like a cat's. And then we have this layer uh, known as the cortex, so the third and most powerful part of the brain, which is really the human brain, what stands that has humans stand out from the brain structure and function of other creatures. And Accordingly, Medina says that we acclimatize to the Earth by becoming adaptable to change. So when the climate changed, then humans, if you like, came out of the trees and went into the grasslands. And our evolutionary history tracks human development from four legs to two in order to walk on the grasslands. And this change seemed to free up energy, which somewhat suggests has been used to develop our more complex human brain. And the symbolic reasoning that humans have, which is the ability to perceive one thing as another, that's uniquely a human talent. Now, this might have arisen from a need to understand one another's intentions and motivations. And these are not really important skills that allow human beings to organize and coordinate themselves within a group. So science has revealed things about the survival mechanisms of the brain. Right, The brain as a whole is a survival organ. It's designed to solve problems relating to surviving in an unstable outdoor environment and to do so in constant motion. Well, to minimally keep yourself alive long enough to pass on your genes. You know, humans were not the strongest on the planet. But we have developed the strongest brains, which is clearly the key to our survival. So the strongest brains survive, not the strongest bodies. Our ability to solve problems and learn from mistakes and to create alliances with other people, this helps us to survive. And it's suggested that human beings took over the world by learning to cooperate with one another and form teams with their neighbors. So that the idea of survival of the fittest is not really what's at play here. So it's not about competition, it's more about a cooperation And learning to cooperate with one another is really also key to the success of survival. And our ability to understand each other is also a really important survival tool. Because our relationships helped us survive in the jungle. And they're critical even now to surviving at work and at school and at home. Now, we all know if someone doesn't feel safe with their teacher or in the workplace with their boss or whoever's supervising them or even in a family situation, then you're not going to perform well. You know, if a student feels misunderstood because the teacher isn't connecting with them or connecting with the way the student learns, then the student could do poorly even though they may have great skills, but they're not able to communicate or create rapport or have room to express in a way that's meaningful for them. Okay, so rule number two is about survival. And then rule number three is the idea of wiring and that every brain is wired differently. So what you do and learn in life Physically changes what your brain looks like. So it literally rewires your activity, your behavior, what you learn and what you do changes your brain. And the various regions of the brain develop at different rates in different people. You know, no two brains store the same information in the same way or in the same place. And there are a number of ways of being intelligent and Many of these ways don't show up on the I.Q. tests. Those are really an, uh, 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 becoming more of an archaic or, or ancient, older type of testing before we knew the things we do know now. And even in earlier years, there was common thought that supported the idea that there were really only seven categories of intelligence: you know the verbal, the ability to use words, visual the ability to imagine things in your mind, the physical intelligence, the ability to use your body in various situations, and then musical intelligence, the ability to use and understand music, mathematical, the ability to apply logic to systems and numbers, introspective, which is the ability to understand your inner thoughts, and then interpersonal, which would be the ability to understand other people and relate well to them. But what's showing up more and more is that these seven categories of intelligence are really very, very, very limited. And that what may be more true is that there may be more than seven billion categories of intelligence You know, a a category of intelligence uh, that represents each individual in the world. That all brains are wired differently. No two people have the same brain, not even twins. And every student's brain, every employer's brain, every person in your family, every customer is wired differently. So the idea is we can either agree to the differences or ignore them. And Medina's suggesting that the current education system ignores those differences. And they they grade students and they have this structure based on the age. But he's using an example of the businesses like Amazon that are kind of catching on to this idea of customizing things. And as an example, if you go to the Amazon homepage, the products that you see will be tailored specifically to you based on your recent purchases. So there's more and more of that type of thing going on. Regions of the brain develop at different rates in different people. The brains of school children are just as unevenly developed as their bodies. And again, he's suggesting that for the most part, current school system ignores the fact that every brain is wired differently and wrongly assumes that every brain is the same and that people will learn the same and achieve the same in the same amount of time. (laughs) And, you know, we all hear stories of, you know, uh, a child that's either reading at a grade level lower than um, his expected range or her expected range given their age and grade that they're in. And then we also hear stories and situations of, of students that are achieving at a much higher level, um, high school uh, students uh, being able to score and excel in uh, university tests, as an example. So this kind of shows what it is that we're speaking about here in rule number three, which is about how every brain is wired differently. And then number four is the attention. Rule number four for the brain is about attention that, <laughs> guess what? We all know people don't pay attention to boring things. And uh, even within that, you know, what's boring to one person is not boring to somebody else. But, you know, the brain's attention, if you like, uh, spotlight, can focus on only one thing at a time. So this might suggest that multitasking may be actually a myth. That it's not really multi, it's not really happening at the same time. It's more happening sequentially. But as a general comment, we tend to be better at seeing patterns and then at abstracting meaning of an event rather than recording the details. And emotional arousal, so when there's some kind of personal connection to something, that that helps the brain learn. It's also suggested that an audience will tune out after about 10 minutes. But if you keep grabbing them back by telling them narratives or creating things that are rich in emotion, that that helps them to pay attention. And we know that we pay attention. What we pay attention to is profoundly influenced by our memory. So previous experience will often predict what we're going to focus on. And then our culture, the information from our culture, also influences us. But whether you're at school or, or in a business context, these differences can greatly affect how um, someone receives or perceives any given presentation. Generally, we pay attention to things like emotions and threats and sex, and this would be true regardless of who you are. Because the brain pays a great deal of attention to these types of issues, right? It's interested in, like, can I eat it? Or will it eat me? Can I mate with it? Or will it mate with me? Or have I seen this before? That These are just sort of automatic things in the brain that the brain looks for. So the new science is pointing more in the direction of saying that the brain is not capable of multitasking. We can talk and breathe, but when it comes to higher-level tasks that we're generating, we just can't do it at the same time. So driving while talking on a cell phone is like driving drunk. The brain is a sequential processor, and large fractions of a second are consumed every time the brain switches tasks. So this is why cell phone talkers are a half a second slower to hit the brakes and get in more car accidents because of the time that it takes for the brain. There is, there is fractions of seconds of time that it takes the brain to switch from one task to another. And I, I know when I, um, uh, for the longest time after I had uh, injured my brain had hit my head, that that was even more exaggerated for me. I was very aware of the time that it took for my brain to switch from focusing on one type of tax to focus on another. And as my brain has recovered, and oftentimes um, uh, brain recovery comes from uh, an active brain, using your brain, and certainly I had been involved with brain-based therapy, but as a general comment, the brain will... Um, work to bring itself back to balance from uh working, which is a good thing. But it's good to understand that. It's not really multitasking, that the brain is actually a sequential sequential processor. So if you think of like workplaces and schools that encourage this idea of multitasking, you know, you walk into an office and you people, see people, they're sending emails and they're Answering the phones and they're talking to someone who came into the room to ask you a question. They may be instant messaging somebody and they're kind of doing all this at the same time. But research shows that the rate of errors actually goes up by 50% and it actually takes twice as long to do things when you're um, uh, taxing or stressing your, uh, requiring your brain to do all of this. Uh, what you think is multitasking, that actually takes time to switch from task to task. You're not doing it at the same time. You may be focusing sequentially, is what you're doing. You're focusing sequentially on many different things. Yeah. It's kind of like getting the brain going in one direction, and then changing and changing and changing and changing, and it takes time to change. So... The research suggests that when you're always online, you're always distracted. So the organizations that are always online, uh, there is a level that they're not as productive, and the error rate goes up by 50% when we're trying to do things in that sort of multitasked kind of way. So that is um, brain rule number four, which is about attention. And then rule number five, which is the short-term memory. And generally what we want to do is we want to repeat to remember. The brain's got many different types of memory systems, and one type follows four stages of processing. There's encoding information, storing information, retrieving information, and actually forgetting information we have this information coming into our brain, it needs to automatically be split split into fragments that are sent to different regions of the cortex for storage. So most of the events that predict whether something learned will also be remembered occur really in the first few seconds of learning. So the more elaborately we encode a memory during its initial moments, the stronger the memory will be you can improve your chances of remembering something if you reproduce the environment in which you first put the information into your brain. So the uh, science is suggesting that the human brain can only hold about 7 pieces of information for less than 30 seconds. So this means, you know, your brain can handle that 7-digit phone number. But if you want to extend the 30 seconds, or extend it even to a few minutes, or even an hour or two, then you need to consistently re-expose yourself to the information. You know, our memories are so unstable that you have to repeat in order to remember. So, improve your memory by coding the information, especially during the initial moments. You know, many of us have trouble remembering names, you know, at a party. I'm certainly like that. But if you need to help remember somebody, it might help to repeat internally more information about them. So you meet someone and you say, oh, they're wearing a blue shirt. Oh, my favorite color is blue. Now, it might seem counterintuitive at first, but the studies show that this kind of elaboration on the information will help you it improves your memory. Okay, and then there study from um, um, Brain Rules in the Classroom. They did a, a partnership with the University of uh, Washington and Seattle, and they uh, tested the Brain Rule about memory in the classroom of third graders. So they were asked to repeat their multiplication tables in the afternoon. And the classrooms in the study did significantly better than the classrooms that didn't have the repetition. So when they did the overall testing for the grade threes in their multiplication tables, the ones that had repeated in the afternoon did much better. And the brain scientists got to, if they could get together with the teachers and do the research, then we would maybe be able to eliminate that need for homework because we could do the learning in school instead of at home by doing the elaborate repetition actually in school. Okay, so that's memory, sort of short-term memory is rule number five. And then the long-term memory is rule number six. So to remember, we have to repeat Most memory disappears really within a few minutes. But the memories that survive are really fragile during the initial period and then strengthen over time. So the long-term memories are really um, happen more from a two-way conversation between two parts of the brain, the hippocampus and the cortex. And over time, the hippocampus breaks the connection and the memory becomes long-term memory and is permanently stored then in the cortex, which can take years to happen. So our brains give us only an approximate view of reality, because they mix the new knowledge with the past memories, and it's all stored together. So the way that you can make your long-term memory more reliable is to incorporate the new information gradually, and then repeat it at timed intervals. It takes years, really, to consolidate a memory, not minutes or hours or days, but years. So what you learn in first grade is not commonly formed until your sophomore year in high school. Okay. So if you're wondering how you could improve your retention of information, the key really is repeated exposure to the information in specifically timed intervals, because this approach is what provides the most powerful way to fix memory into the brain. So forgetting allows us to prioritize our events, but if you want to remember, then you have to repeat. So that's rule number six for long-term memory is repeat, repeat. And then rule seven is sleep, sleep well. If you sleep well, you'll think well. If you think about it, the brain is in constant tension between two opposing processes, cells in chemistry that try to put you to sleep and cells in chemistry that try to keep you awake. And the neurons of your brain show vigorous, rhythmical activity when you're asleep. And so perhaps what's happening is they're replaying what you learned during the day. People vary in how much sleep they need and when they prefer to get it. But the biological drive for an afternoon nap is a universal thing. When we sleep, the brain's not resting at all. It's very active. And we might need that rest in order to learn what it is we're learning. You know, it it must play a very important part, because you think about it, a third of our lives are spent sleeping. And loss of sleep hurts our attention, our executive function, our working memory, our mood, our quantitative skills, our logic, reasoning, and even our motor dexterity. So napping is a normal thing. It's because your brain really wants to take a nap. There's that, if you like that, you know, battle inside in your cells. You know, around 3 p.m., people often find that a lull in the day, and it's because it's really the 12-hour midpoint from your sleep, and that's when your brain would want to take a nap. So the suggestion is to not schedule important meetings at 3 p.m. because it just doesn't make sense. That's the time when you're most likely to feel sluggish and the time that your brain's more likely to want that kind of replenishing that occurs when you're resting or meditating or even when you're asleep. Okay, so sleep is uh, rule number seven. Sleep well and you'll think well. And then number eight is about stress. Stressed brains do not learn the same as non-stressed brains. So really, your body's defense system, that's the release of adrenaline and cortisol. It's built for an immediate response to a serious but passing danger. You know, like in the olden times when we had to be aware of that saber-toothed tiger. But if you think of chronic stress, such as if there's hostility at home, that can dangerously deregulate your system, deregulate a brain that's built only to deal with short-term stress or short-term responses. So under chronic stress, adrenaline really creates scars in your blood vessels that can cause a heart attack or a stroke, and cortisol damages the cells of the hippocampus, really stunting your ability to learn and to remember. So the worst kind of stress really is that feeling that you have no control over a problem, that you're helpless. And emotional stress really has a huge impact across society on children's ability to learn in school and on employees' ability to be productive at work. Right, your brain is built to deal with stress that only lasts about 30 seconds, not for longer stress. Remember that emotional stability of the home is the single greatest predictor of academic success. So if you want your kid <laughs> to be uh, successful, not just in school, but just to be successful in terms of developing who they are as an individual to be a positive person that um, feels confident and can endorse who they are, then it's so essential to create stability, emotional stability in the home. So remember, you have one brain. It's the same brain you have at home, it's the same brain that you have at work, the same brain you have at school. So the stress you're experiencing at home will affect your performance at work and vice versa. It's good to be mindful of that. So stress plays a really big, big role in um, the ability for the brain to function um, and uh, to thrive. Okay, so eight is stress and nine is about sensory integration. And the idea for good brain function is to stimulate more of the senses at the same time. You now we absorb information about events through the senses and that's translated that information is translated into electrical signals right some are for sight some are for sound and for the other senses and then the signals are dispersed to the separate parts of the brain and then the brain reconstructs what's happened and then it eventually will perceive the experience as a whole thing So our senses work together, so it's important to stimulate them together. Our brain really is stimulated by the perceptions of the whole world, the sight, sound, taste, smell, touch. It's all like an energetic sensory buffet, if you like. And then we're certainly aware that smell is unusually effective at evoking memory. If you're tested on the details of a movie while you smell, have that smell of popcorn in the air, then the studies show that you will remember 10 to 50% more of what actually went on in the movie. And that whole idea you think of smell being important in business when you walk into Starbucks, the first thing you smell is the coffee. And then there's the learning link, right? People in multisensory environments always do better than those in unsensory environments or unisensory, not unsensory, but unisensory environments. They have better recall and they have better resolution that lasts longer. And that would be true even over time that that is the case. And then we have rule number 10. And rule number 10 suggests that really vision Um, is the master. It trumps all the other senses. It's the dominant sense. It takes up half of our brain resources. So what we see and what our brain tells us we see, it's not 100% accurate. Because the visual analysis has many steps to it. The retina assembles the protons into little like movie-like streams of information. The visual cortex processes the stream, and then some areas register motion, others color, and then finally we combine that information back together so that we can see. And we learn and we remember best through pictures, not through written or spoken words. You know, we're incredible at remembering pictures. We hear a piece of information, and three days later you'll remember 10% of it. But if you add a picture, study says that you'll remember up to 65% of it. That's quite a difference. That's a 55% increase just by adding a picture. And then pictures are certainly better than just the text. The text really is ineffective for us because our brain sees words as lots of tiny little pictures that we have to identify certain features in the letters to be able to read them, and that takes time for the brain to process, even though we don't experience it as time. On a brain level, it is taking time. And the suggestion is that maybe vision is paramount above the other senses because historically that's how... Humans could identify major threats. That's how they sought out food supplies and tracked down um, opportunities for reproduction. So as an example, for more effective results, you want to replace that text in um, your PowerPoint presentations and replace them with crisp images that tell the story about what you're trying to convey. And then just highlight this with a few descriptive words And then you'll be able to create powerhouse presentations every time that keep people interested in things that people will remember because of the visual input. And then rule number 11 is about gender. Male and female brains are different. The X chromosome that males have one of and females have two of, the one acts as a backup, is really... Uh, what Medina says is a cognitive hotspot and carries an unusually large percentage of the genes that are involved in, in brain manufacture. So women are genetically more complex because of the active X chromosome in their cells are a mix of mom and dad's. Men's X chromosomes all come from mom and their Y chromosome carries less than 100 genes compared with 1,500 for the X chromosome. That's quite a big difference. So men and women's brains are different structurally and biochemically. Here's an example. Men have a bigger amygdala and produce serotonin faster. But we don't know if those differences really have a significance. They haven't done those brain studies yet. But men and women respond differently to acute stress. Women activate the left hemispheres, amygdala, and remember the emotional details, whereas men use the right amygdala and get the essence of the situation. Now, For a long time, mental health professionals have known about sex-based differences in the type and severity of psychiatric disorders. As an example, males are more severely afflicted by schizophrenia than females are. Yet by more than two to one, women are more likely to get depressed than men. And this figure shows up not just after puberty, it remains stable really um, into, the, into the 60s. So males exhibit more antisocial behavior, and females tend to have more anxiety. And the studies show that most alcoholics and drug addicts are male, whereas most anorexics are female. So these are just some of the highlights for the differences in the male and the female brain. You know, men and women handle acute stress differently. This, uh, there was this research done. Uh, Larry Cahill showed um, men and women slasher films, and the men fired up the amyg- amygdala in the right brain hemisphere, which is responsible for the essence of the event. But the left part of that brain was quiet. Whereas the women, it was the opposite. It lit up their left amygdala, the one responsible for details. So when you think of it, if you have a team that simultaneously understands the essence and the details of any given stressful situation, that that really helps humanity, if you like, master the game of life. So, men and women process certain emotions differently, and the emotions are useful because they make the brain pay attention. And these differences are a product of complex interactions between nature and nurture. So that's a rule, brain rule number 11 is about uh, gender. And then 12, the last rule is about the exploration. We're, We're powerful and natural explorers. You know, if you look at babies, they're a great model of how we learn. They don't learn by passive reaction to their environment, but they're actively testing through observation and hypothesis and experiment and drawing conclusions, So specific parts of the brain allow this scientific approach. The right prefrontal cortex looks for errors in the hypothesis. So that Sabbath-toothed tiger is not harmless, but then another adjoining region tells you to, to change your behavior and to run. So we recognize and imitate behavior because of mirror neurons that are scattered across the brain. And some parts of our adult brains stay as malleable as the baby's brains so that we can create neurons and learn things throughout our lives. That desire to explore never leaves us, despite the classroom and cubicles we live in. Babies are that great model. They're not passive. They react to the environment. They're active. They test things out. Right? They methodically do experiments on objects to try to figure them out and see what they will do. And as adults, we watch and are thoroughly entertained as babies, and young people are doing this. Now here's an interesting idea. You know Google um, takes to heart the power of exploration. For 20 percent of their time, the employees are free to go with their mind wherever their mind's going to take them and the they they say that the proof really is in the bottom line because 50% of all the new products including Gmail and Google News came from the time that the employees spent in that 20% time when their mind was free to explore new ideas so that is our brain rule number 12 which is has to do with exploration and You know, that whole idea that we never stop learning, that that's part of how the brain is built to keep going and keep going. Isn't that wonderful? The brain can just keep going and keep going no matter what. It's a beautiful thing. So just to review again the 12 brain rules, it's exercise, survival, wiring, attention, memory, sleep, stress, Senses, vision, gender, and then exploration. Now, those are the 12 brain rules that Medina, Dr. John Medina, highlights in his book, The Brain Rules. The Brain Rules. Hmm. beautiful. So, just as a recap or a summary here, there are three requirements for human life. Right? Food, drink, and fresh air. But their effects on survival have very different timelines. So you can live for 30 days or so without food. And you can go for a week or so without drinking water. But your brain is a whole other story. Your brain is so active that it cannot go without oxygen for more than five minutes without risking serious and permanent damage. And toxic electrons over-accumulate because blood can't deliver enough oxygen. So that's what happens when we have that brain damage after five minutes of no oxygen. It's the buildup of the toxic electrons. They over-accumulate because of not having enough oxygen. So when you exercise, you increase blood flow across the tissue of your body. So the more you exercise, the more tissues you can feed, and the more toxic waste your brain's able to remove. And that's why exercise improves the performance of most human functions, not just the brain. So that's a lot to think about. Brain health and brain longevity and the brain rules. The brain rules for healthy healthy brain function and longevity. And it's quite exciting um, to... Uh, keep up with some of the new information that keeps coming about our brain, a very untapped um, resource, I would have to say, in all of us. Oh, lots of people say we only use about 5% of our real brain capacity. So there's exciting times ahead as we continue to uncover the secrets of our beautiful, wonderful brain, that gray matter that sits on top of our our head, inside, inside our head. So... It has been a pleasure speaking with you today about the brain rules, the 12 brain rules from Dr. John Medina. And I thank you for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio on Voice America Variety. And I look forward to speaking with you again next week. And until then, I encourage you to relax and enjoy life.
0: Hope you've enjoyed our program today and perhaps have found some new techniques that you can apply to your daily life. Thank you for tuning in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio. Please join Leah Brenda Smith again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety channel. We'll see you next week.